2 Kings 22, verses 8 through 13. Hear now God's word. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bring the king word, uh, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work to oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Achaim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout history, there have been many reformations. The corruption of man always pulls us downward and away. Thus, there is a continual need to be rescued and restored. In God's providence, King Josiah was the last good thing that happened to Judah before their kingdom was destroyed. Josiah's father... King Ammon was assassinated when Josiah was eight years old, and then he ascended to the throne. At age 15, we're told that he began to seek after the God of David. Teenagers, pay attention. At age 19, he undertook reforms to stop idol worship and the evils that were associated with it. At age 25, he decided to rebuild Jehovah's glorious temple, which had been forgotten and had deteriorated over the years. As the workers were cleaning out long, unused portions of the temple, they found a book that no one had heard of. The book was the Bible, or rather, what they considered to be the Bible, the first five books of our modern Bible. It had been ignored for so long that no one knew there was such a thing. A lot can be forgotten in a hundred years. As the king listened to his secretary read the Bible, he was overwhelmed with certain, uh, and he was also certain that Jehovah must be angry both with him as the king, Josiah, and with the people for their disobedience. And so the king sent his men to find a prophet who could ask a question and get an answer from Jehovah. And they found a woman named Huldah. And she verified that Jehovah was indeed very angry with Judah for their pagan practices. In fact, Jehovah had decided to bring disaster upon Judah, um, laying waste to their land because of their long history of sin. However... Because Josiah had responded appropriately with grief and repentance, Jehovah promised that Josiah 
would die honorably before the disaster struck, that he would not see it himself. First, uh, first, Josiah, in not just hearing about it, now begins to do something about it, starts to institute reforms. And so he assembled the population of Jerusalem and he read the entire Bible, the first, our first five books. He read it aloud to them. And he renewed the Lord's covenant to obey all that was written in the Bible, just as he had read. And he invited the people to pledge themselves to that covenant. And they did. Immediately, Josiah set out with a sweeping program of reform to eliminate pagan worship and to renew this ancient covenant with Jehovah. He toured the land. He destroyed pagan shrines and celebrated the Passover for the first time in decades. When Josiah arrived at Bethel, he found the shrine of the golden calf built by Israel's king, Jeroboam. To render the site unfit for future idol worship, Josiah exhumed from the nearby cemetery the bones of the idol's priests and burned them on Jeroboam's altar thereby fulfilling a prophecy spoken 300 years earlier in Jeroboam's day, finding also the grave of this prophet who had named Josiah in his prophecy, he left it undisturbed. Finally, Josiah hosted a Passover celebration commemorating Jehovah's work in freeing Israel from Egyptian slavery. Jehovah had instructed his people to celebrate Passover annually, but this had not been obeyed. And so Josiah called the people to celebrate, and he himself supplied them with, get the size of this party now, 33,000 animals for sacrifice, all from his own farm. This was a big deal. All of Judah came, and many people from Israel, those who had not been deported in the Assyrian captivity. In that regard, this was the most complete Passover celebration since the day of the prophet Samuel about 400 years earlier. The Reformation and the revival was wonderful. But, as soon as Josiah died, the people returned to their evil ways, and before his sons reached middle age, Jehovah's judgment for centuries of evil practice came, and Judah was no more. This is a significant Sunday for us. Remembrance is important if we are not to lose our way. Throughout Scripture, we see examples of this. There's a a generation, we're told, that knew not Joseph. Just in a generation or two, you think about it. If you were to die today, in 50 years, in 100 years, you'll be forgotten completely. Maybe your name will be in a book somewhere or something, or a headstone in a grave, but nobody will know you. So in a very short order, if we're not careful, we can forget what we've been given. We can lose that heritage, lose our inheritance. And so, forgetting is a sin. Doctrine is essential to right living when it is held in a proper way. And God warns against forgetting it. Today is Reformation Sunday, and as 
and as we, and we look back with remembrance, but we also are then to take what we've remembered and turn around and look forward. Reformation Sunday falls in the midst of this sermon series on foundations, which is very apropos. Our nation needs reformation. The church needs reformation. We, perhaps you too, could use a little reformation in your family or in your life. And so I call upon us today to remember, to reflect, and to, to consider, and to advance. What is it to be reformed? We hear much about Social Security reform, welfare reform, immigration reform, tax reform, campaign finance reform. Why do all these things need to be reformed? Well, because they've been corrupted from their original intent. And I'll not comment at this time on whether all those things had good original intent or not. But in either case, when we talk about reforming something, there's a recognition that something's broken. Something is wrong. Something has gone wrong. We have all faced this question when it comes to the church, being in a what we consider a reformed denomination. What is reformed? And there are questions born of curiosity or ignorance and sometimes even of hostility. Well, the answer is to be reformed is to stand with those who oppose the corruption of the church and the gospel in the Middle Ages and who sought ecclesiastical, theological, and social reform. Is Reformation only of special interest to Christians? Well, I wonder how many Protestant believers in this city even know that it is Reformation Sunday or what Reformation Sunday is. How is it that our Protestant and evangelical heritage has been so quickly forgotten and lost? The scripture warns in Proverbs 22:28, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. 502 years ago, Martin Luther stood up to the corruption of the Church of Rome, and he wasn't alone in this, but this is far more than the widespread personal immorality of the clergy, which was certainly prevalent. This was also the theological corruption of the gospel itself that led to the abuse of people by way of indulgences, extortion, and other things. The tyranny of superstition was used to dominate and to intimidate people, and as a result, the entire culture was defiled. Their their culture and our culture are always reflections of the state of the church. Professor John Murray wrote this. He said, in these days, in these days that blur the lines of distinction between truth and error, it is well known, excuse me, it is well to keep before our minds the great grace bestowed upon the church and the world in the Reformation. We are so far removed from those centuries that we are too ready to underestimate or even forget the surpassing privilege that is ours in this Reformation heritage. We need but think of the superstition that encompassed the church when Luther nailed his theses to the church door in Wittenberg in order to catch some vision of the darkness that then began to be dispelled 
and of the glory that had begun to appear on the horizon. And we also need to think of what would have been our situation today if God in just and holy judgment had withheld his grace and allowed this superstition with all its entail of implications to continue and develop a system of iniquity, the system of iniquity that it represented. Think of what our situation would be without a Protestant Reformation. And so we are proud to honor and celebrate Reformation Sunday. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century provides a great demonstration of personal, familial, ecclesiastical, and social reformation. We look to this period of history and witness the dramatic results of God's reforming work. We see, we see it first in the individual lives of men and women, then in their families and churches, and ultimately in the reformation of society. The reformation of 16th century Europe wasn't unique. As we've mentioned, it represents the character of all true reformations. In it, we find the genuine work of God. In it, we see a pattern for future reformations. And the Bible, as we've mentioned, records many reformations, the personal reformations of Abraham, of David, of Paul, and many, many more. The social reformations of Israel or Nineveh or or at Pentecost. The ecclesiastical reformations, as we have read about in Nehemiah, or Jesus at the temple. And so reformation is central to the Bible and to the gospel. The entire history of man is a story of sin and rebellion against God and and the need of reformation. So think of it this way. I'm going to try to put this in some simple terms that maybe help remember this. Man was formed in the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Man's sinfulness caused him to become deformed, wrecked, ruined, messed up. As a result, sinful men must be reformed by the power and the work of God. Our own moment on the stage of history likewise stands in need of genuine reformation. God's word has been set aside and replaced by the zeitgeist, which is just a German word for the spirit of the age. A mix of rationalism, mysticism, postmodernism, and whatever it is we've got now. Without Reformation, we're lost. And so let's look at these. First, the formation of man. Why are we here? What did God intend? What's the purpose of our existence? Is to glorify Him. God created the world by the word of His power... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so the the formless world begins to take form. John 1, 1 1-3, parallel to Genesis 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, that is, by Jesus Christ, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Do you believe that? Because if that, if that one statement is true, that nothing exists apart from Him, then that changes Everything. That changes our perspective. That changes why you got up today, what you're going to do the rest of the day, what you're going to do next week, and what you're going to do with your life. And if that's not true, then that's a totally different story. The entire creation owes its existence to the Word of God. All creatures are subject to the authority of God's Word. Perfect harmony is the result of a creation that is obedient to God's Word. Everybody and everything doing what it was intended to do. And as we read in Genesis 1.31, immediately after the creation and before sin enters the picture, and God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. God formed man from the dust of the earth. He created man in his own image to be a reflection of God. With dominion over the creation, man was given the task of raising a family, be fruitful and multiply. Man was given the task of ruling the earth and its creatures. He was given God's Word by which to live. His tasks were defined by God, work and family. His limitations were defined by God. From any tree in the garden you may eat. Freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you'll die. That was his one limitation. This was what we call paradise. Personal. The newly formed man walked with God. He knew the joy and the blessing of life. His family, there was a husband and wife. The two became one flesh. The expectation of generational blessings. And socially, all the earth bowed to Adam's rule. The earth yielded its fruit willingly. But then, the deformation of man. The challenge to God's authority. Half God said, Satan asked, That's always the beginning of trouble. A new authority, one that will sit in judgment of the Creator, who will now determine good and evil for themselves. This is a claim by the creature to know better than God. The issue of authority is at the heart of every sin. No one is going to tell me what to do, not even God, because I want to be God. This is why people continue to rebel against God and all legitimate authority. This is at the heart of feminism, LBGT+, and a host of other anti-social movements. God is not going to define me. God is not going to tell me who I am or what I can and can't do. It's really that simple. Psalm 2, 1-3 through captures it. Why do the nations rage? And why do the people imagine a vain or an empty thing? 
The kings of the earth, these human authorities, set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against who? Against the Lord. And against his anointed, his Christ. Let them, uh, let us break their bonds into pieces, they say. We don't want him telling us what to do. And let us cast away these cords, these these chains that bind us. We, we want to be free to do what we want to do. God is not going to tell us. And so man became his own God. He determined good and evil for himself. The puny creature decides to bring God's word before his own bar and to force it to stand trial. And so in so doing, man fell either into the ditch of rationalism or the ditch of mysticism, and ultimately into despair and postmodernism. And again, whatever we have now, I don't know if it has a name yet. I'll have to ask Roy that. I think we're on the backside of postmodernism, so we just got a mess. This is a perversion, a twisting, and it causes the deformation of the creature. Now, God would answer to the creature. He must submit to the authority and judgments of men. Instead of worshiping God, the Bible tells us they exchanged the truth for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Professing to be wise, men became fools. Personal turmoil, family strife, social chaos, ecclesiastical corruption... The Bible calls covenant curses, separation, and death. Deformed man devises many ways to try to solve the mess that he's created. He, he became so deformed that he either sought to make God in his own image, or else he suppressed the truth about God. Romans 1.21 again, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Humanism takes many forms, and it devises many schemes. Man's problems are environmental. Man's problems are educational. Man's problems are genetic. That's our last great hope, isn't it? Science is going to fix this for us. This has been the story of man ever since the fall. The resounding theme of deformed man is we can solve our own problems. We can save ourselves. We have the authority and power. We will not have this man, this God, to rule over us. I've got this. This deformation of man is why the work of reformation is so essential. Unless God moves to reform deformed men personally, as well as in his family and society, all is lost until God's word rules a man's heart and rules his family and society. You can forget it. And that leads us then to the third thing, the reformation of man. The 16th century Protestant Reformation was born in the midst of great corruption and deformation. The social institutions were corrupt, ecclesiastical and political. 
a combination of theological rationalism and theological mysticism, a superstitious theology of works and indulgences dominated the church. The work of God's reformation had some small beginnings, and that's really encouraging. It began in the unsettled heart of an obscure monk named Martin Luther. His concerns were primarily personal. That's where our concerns should begin. He struggled with the corruption of his own heart. He sought to apply the remedies devised by men. By his own strength, this poor, deformed man tried desperately to reform himself, to bring himself into a position of being right with God. Luther said, I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Paul said he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The more he tried these remedies, the worse he perceived his condition to be. He was helpless and hopeless. He wrote this, the devil's dungeon, In devil's dungeon chained I lay, the pangs of death swept over me. My sin devoured me night and day in which my mother bore me. My anguish ever grew more rife. I took no pleasure in my life. And sin had made me crazy. As these things seemed dark and hopeless, the Word of God took hold and did its reforming work in the life of this one rather obscure sinner. By faith, Luther found salvation from his moral deformity by submitting to the Word of God rather than the false promises and schemes of men. He wrote this, God works by contraries. So that a man feels himself to be lost in the very moment when he is on the point of being saved. When God is about to justify a man, he damns him. Whom he would make alive, he first must kill. God's favor is so communicated in the form of wrath. Do you hear that? God's favor is so communicated in the form of wrath that it seems farthest when it is at hand. Man must, uh, must first cry out that there is no health in him. When a man believes himself to be utterly lost, light breaks. Peace comes in the word of Christ through faith. And so the real work of reformation begins when a person bows his heart to the authority of God's word. That's where it started, right? We read, we, read, we read of King Josiah's Reformation, and as we read part of today from 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. When we say, not my will, but your will be done. When we come to agree with, God, with what God says about us and what he says about himself. When we confess that he was right all along and that indeed man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, then and only then can true reformation come. And it comes one person at a time. 
A rebellious, deformed creature is reformed into a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's reformed. Reformed. He's a new creation. Created in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things, old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. His thoughts become your thoughts by way of reformed thinking. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. His ways become your ways. You have taken off the old man, deformed man, and put on the new reformed man, which in the likeness of God has been created, how? The same way Adam was, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now God was ready to use this single reformed sinner to bring reformation to the world. Luther now wanted to discuss the corruptions of his day and the teaching of the Word of God with a few of his colleagues where he worked. Little did Luther know how God was about to use him any more than the faithful shepherd boy David knew how God was about to anoint him to be king and shepherd of Israel. He announced a disputation on indulgences by posting a written document of 95 theses, that is just a list of 95 things, that he was willing to debate. And he did this, which was the common practice, on the door of the University of Wittenberg. These were both academic, and if you've read them, you might say that was, those were pretty unexciting in tone. Routine faithfulness is often not that exciting. God used this unsuspected challenge to send a wake-up call to the religious establishment. Within two weeks, every religious center was stirred with agitation. Roland Baton says in his book, his biography of Luther, Here I Stand, he said, Luther was like a man climbing in the darkness of a winding staircase in a steeple of an ancient cathedral, In the blackness, he reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hold of a rope, and he was startled to hear the clanging of a bell. So we must never be discouraged by the circumstances. God is above the circumstances. He's bigger than the circumstances. Anybody watch the news lately? Is that encouraging? Somebody say, you want to watch something scary for Halloween? Just turn on the news. But as Paul instructed Timothy concerning the cultural ups and downs of his own day, he says, here's what I want you to do, Timothy. I want you to preach the word. I want you to be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. Doesn't matter whether they're listening or not listening. Your job remains the same. Reformation is God's work. It's carried on as reformed individuals are faithful to proclaim his powerful word, both in, in word and deed. How we live, our families, our personal lives. Luther recognized that those who came to truly benefit from this reforming work of God did so, not because of Luther, but because of God's Word. Again, he, he writes, They believe not for any man's sake. Talking about the people who have become, kind of become followers of Luther. As more and more people came on board, he said, They believe not for any man's sake, but for the sake of the Word itself. There are many who believe on my account, but the only true believers are those who would continue to believe, even if they heard, which God forbid, that I had denied the faith or fallen away from it. For they do not believe on Luther, but on Christ himself. 
The Word has them, and they have the Word. As for Luther, they care not whether he is a knave or a saint. I do not preach him, but Christ. Reformation, though, never stops with a single person. It extends to his family and then to the world around him. Once the authority of God's word is established in a person's life, then they are prepared to take, that, take on the world's challenges and threats. This reformation, which denies self and bows to God's word, brings about a whole new view of the world. It gives a reformed view of authority and knowledge, along with a clear perception of God's saving work with man and of man's place within God's kingdom. And so this reformation in Europe, like all true reformations, brought with it lasting social, political, and economic changes as well. The borders of God's kingdom expand each time a deformed sinner is reformed by the word of God. Such a radical reformation cannot be contained. Our true salvation will not come from political leaders down to the culture. Rather, cultural reform begins in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. As the church faithfully proclaims the word of God. So let me just summarize. Because I want to just for this to stick with you. It's just a simple way to think about what Reformation is. Number one, the formation. The formation of man. God made man right, personally and socially, under the authority of God's holy word, man lived in paradise. The deformation of man. In rebellion, man declared himself to be God. Man's word now became the arbiter and ruler of the universe. God, the creator, must now answer to man, the creature. Corruption and misery have been the course ever since. Man became perverted and deformed. The reformation of man. Thanks be to God. He moved, he moved to reform deformed men and restore them. Under God's word, sinful men and a sinful world can come to know the joy of real reformation. Once the liberty of reformation has been known, once the truth has set us free, there can never be any going back. Luther's personal reformation had rocked the world and many wished to undo the damage. Outlawed by the Emperor Charles V and brought before the Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther was called upon to recant everything, to recant his views. May we all learn from his now famous reply what it is to submit to the authority of God's word in the face of all dangers. Many of you have heard this quote many times and I think it's good to hear it many more. Here's what he said when called upon to recant. Your imperial majesty and your lordship demand a simple answer. Here it is. Plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest reasoning, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the popes or the councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, I stand convinced, convicted by the Scriptures 
to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to act... Uh, For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the reformations we've read about and heard about in history of how you have worked to rescue men from their own foolishness, individually and corporately. We thank you for the record of King Josiah and many others in Scripture, and we thank you, Lord, for the Protestant Reformation that we celebrate today and remember. But, Lord, may we not be readers only, But may we be doers of the Reformation. May we begin with our own hearts, submitted to your word, bowing before you and saying, Lord, you are true. You are right. We surrender. Not our will, but your will be done. Begin that work in us and continue that work in us. And may it spill over into our families into our places of work and school and friendships and neighborhoods and indeed to the whole world. For indeed this whole world is in desperate need of reformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we stand in the heritage of the Reformation. If Reformation is to continue, that is really if life is to continue in our day, we must do more than admire the courageous and faithful saints of the past. We must stand on the shoulders of the generations of reformers who have gone before us and reach higher. Our generation is to be more than occupational troops. We should be that, but we should be much more. There are still beaches to be stormed because the war is not over. The best way to honor the Reformation is to be certain that we continue it in our own day. Professor John Murray wrote, We fail to accord to the Reformers our debt of gratitude when we cease to prize our heritage. This heritage is not only one to be cherished, it is one to be propagated. The Reformation was the rediscovery of the revealed counsel of God on the, on the most vital issues <coughs> Of the Christian faith. It might be summed up in the rediscovery of salvation by grace. Reformation, however, must not consist only in retrospect nor in the repristination of the legacy furnished by the Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries. Reformation is a present duty. And so, Reformation begins with us. And it's a continual process, and thus we come today to renew covenant with God and to be further renewed or reformed by His Spirit. Scripture alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, all to the glory of God alone. Calvin wrote in a letter to Francis I, Nothing is more consistent with faith than to acknowledge ourselves naked of all virtue, that we may be clothed by God, empty of all good, 
that we may be filled by him. Lame, that we may be guided. Weak, that we may be supported by him. To divest ourselves of all ground of glorying, that he alone may be eminently glorious, and that we may glory in him. Amen. Almighty God, who spoke to the prophets that they might make your will and purpose known, bless your church, the pillar and ground of the truth, the guardian of your word. Conform our minds to yours, and may our lips speak your truth. Take our hearts and kindle them with love for you. Manifest that same love in us as we love one another. What we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Grant us, Lord, that from the written word and by our spoken word, men and women may come to see the incarnate word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Bless now our day, our rest, our fellowship, and as we go out into public to give testimony to life, we pray your blessings on all of this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.